Okay, so at this time, we're blessed to have our second message for today, brought to us by Curtis Whiteley, and it is entitled, And You Will Be My Witnesses. Well, good afternoon to all of you that have tuned in to our live stream. Uh, I hope this Sabbath finds you blessed and doing well out there, as Matt alluded to at the beginning of the uh, service. Uh, it's a beautiful day, and I uh, hope that you, if you have the opportunity, that you've taken us outside with you, and you've enjoyed this beautiful Sabbath day that God has given us. Uh, with this being uh, the first Sabbath after the days of unleavened bread, I know that, uh, I know that we start thinking about as alluded to the count to Pentecost. And Pentecost is coming up. This is day seven as Matthew mentioned and Art alluded to it. Uh, so I want to start today with the words we read about Jesus and the disciples right after all the things they witnessed and review Jesus's instructions. So we went through the days of unleavened bread and we come to Acts the first chapter. So let's go there. And we're going to read some of Jesus' last words on this earth before he ascends. In verse 1, we read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during the 40 days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Hence where we get the title of this message, And you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we see right here that this is Jesus' last words to his apostles before he ascends to heaven. And what I like about this is, is that this is Luke who is writing this book. He wrote the Gospel of Luke as we know. Uh, and he states his purpose in his opening statement. And that purpose was to give an investigated testimony on the things that Jesus did after he was raised for 40 days and also the doings of the apostles after Jesus was taken up or he ascended. And to do this, Luke, which he wrote Luke the Gospel, and he also wrote now the, his counterpart, his, his second volume, so to speak, the Acts of the Apostles. To do this, he used the testimony of eyewitnesses to the risen Christ as his material. And so we have a document that's not just been put together in a haphazard way. It's not been put together without a lot of care. He put this together by actually searching out what the truth was. And he 
testifies to the risen Jesus, but he also testifies to the early issues, the migrations, and the spread of the church. Now, these last words that Jesus gave, he gave a commission to his apostles. What we see is that Jesus gives the disciples, or the apostles, now that the apostles are going to be sent, to wait in Jerusalem, not to depart there, until they had received the promise from the Father, which we know is the Holy Spirit. But this question that was asked of Jesus is very interesting. Because the disciples, or the apostles, the disciples asked Jesus, Will you, look, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now as Jews living during this time, Jesus' apostles would have been raised and taught that what they were waiting on in terms of a Messiah was a restored Israel. That Messiah would come in, restore the uh, independent kingdom to Israel, and that's what they would have heard of. Jesus even spoke the bulk of his message about the kingdom message. About the soon coming kingdom of God. But Jesus' response is not to tell them, yes, I'm going to restore the kingdom, but rather that the Father in heaven is the one who has that time in his own authority. Jesus commissioned them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we know that this is to the apostles, but we also know that this commission is applied to us as Christians, even living in the 21st century. So Jesus gives this commission to be witnesses to him. And we have to ask the question, what exactly is a witness? One time I was listening to a sermon, and it was a pastor that was preaching, and he made a very bold statement that a lot of people probably would disagree with if they just heard the statement with out of context and the statement was that in America it's a tough place to be a Christian now that's an interesting statement because most of us you know even once I heard this you know this statement it took me by surprise even myself now obviously most people would probably think the exact opposite you know we live in a free country a democratic society America has traditionally been seen as a country that was founded on the principles of freedom Specifically, the freedom of religion. And this is not to mention that the vast majority of Americans identify with some form of Christianity. So why did this pastor say this? Now, I'm not here to defend what this pastor said or to argue against what the pastor said. But what I do want to do is to give you a little context on what this pastor meant by this saying. The context of this pastor's message was how the Christian journey is marked by the road of suffering, of trial. He was speaking to an arena filled with missionaries and he gave illustrations of the apostles and how they were beaten and how they were persecuted for their faith, all while still pursuing the commission that they were set on, and that is the preaching of the gospel to the nations, regardless of the dangers that it brought. He cited passages about Jesus telling his disciples the persecution they were going to face even mentioning the words of the Apostle Paul when he said, I die daily in reference to his daily putting his life on the line for the faith journey. And all of this, it made the Apostle stronger. It forced them to rely on God more deeply 
than they ever would have if they did not receive these hardships, if they didn't go through these hardships. And so this is what the pastor meant, in that America, we have so many comforts, luxuries, and for the most part, the same faith as the vast majority of people around us. We have freedom to do these things. But say you go to a different part of the world, maybe the Middle East, or China, or some other place that is hostile to Christianity, how much more would it force us to live in a more akin environment that the apostles lived in? And so you can take that statement in different ways. Uh, I think that if you take it in the way, in the context in which the pastor uh, presents it, I think that there's some merit to it. And it's easy when we live a, in a free environment, and I think that there's testimony and evidence to it, that people take those freedoms for granted. And sometimes it's easy to get whisked away by the luxuries of this world. But the idea of witnesses, it actually comes from the Greek word martis. And it can mean a witness in a literal sense, meaning like judicially, but also can come to refer to analogy to a martyr, one who dies for his or her faith. And I think that both of these ideas bring out the idea of what we are to be. Now, of course, most of us would probably admit that we don't know a lot of people who died for their faith. Uh, because they haven't been put in that situation. We live in a different era. There are people around the world who indeed do die for the faith, even still today in the 21st century. And we have many examples in the Bible of men and women who died uh, for their faith, for the Christian faith, for the gospel account. But the other example is one that I didn't immediately think really applies to the Christian witness. And that is the example of someone who is a witness in the judicial sense. Uh, but after thinking about it a little bit, I think it does apply to us greatly as Christians. Let's just think about that idea. A witness in the court of law testifies as a way to gather evidence on a certain event. Let's just think about that. Some, something somebody did or something happened and you bring up a witness to testify and oftentimes that testimony is weighed and compared to other testimonies and the other known facts of the case and we as Christians we also testify we testify with our life with our words with our actions the way we interact we testify of what Jesus and what God has done for us in our lives and so with that, and with the title of my message today, we're going to go back to the book of Acts here in a little while. But I want us to ask the question, what are some of the things we need that God grants us, gives us, promises us to be true and faithful witnesses? And as I mentioned, we're now on the count of Pentecost, and as been mentioned by Matthew as well as Art in the first message, uh, that's where we are today on that count towards Pentecost. And we're starting to think about the day of Pentecost, which is rapidly coming, as we know time goes by very quickly. And this week, uh, I actually uh, brought out a Bible study that we did here a couple years ago. And we called it the count to Pentecost. It was a five or six part series. I think it was a six part series. And the last study was actually on the day of Pentecost. But we called it the count to Pentecost. And we focused on six key Christian characteristics that are imperative in our daily walk as Christians. And so as I was 
kind of going through some of those first studies that we did, and I was going through, we, we had a handout that they would, we would give everybody the week before, and then the next week when they would come, they could answer the questions in it and be ready to discuss uh, what was in that handout. Today, I just want to touch on a couple of them, because I think it's important as it relates to faith and hope. And I, I borrowed greatly from these Bible studies. They were different. They weren't sermons, but I went through them, and I, I studied them because... Like us, like all of us, we're trying to get ready for Pentecost. And there was just something that I, I, I just started thinking about it. And I thought, man, that's, that's such a great resource to go to. And I'm thankful that we did that. And I do recommend if you have the time and you're interested, back in 2018 is when we did that. Uh, in the spring of that year, in between the Days of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost, we have them recorded. And we also have available those handouts if you are interested. So I want to start talking about faith. Faith is the first characteristic. I, I initially was very ambitious. I was wanting to cover all six of them, but I knew that I really couldn't get to all of them. This was a six-part uh, series. But I do want to go and, and talk about faith and hope and how faith and hope is such a key part of our walk as Christians and as being witnesses for Jesus. So let's go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter. We'll pick it up in verse 1, and we'll read the first three chapters, first three verses. You know where I'm going. You know that this is a famous chapter in the Bible that we typically call the, the, the faith chapter. So I want to go there, and I just want to review that first passage. First three passages, rather. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And we would all probably agree that faith is the key to unlocking it all. We have to have faith in God. Faith is... In God is what everything is built off of. And it's not just a blind faith, as we'll see in just a few minutes. It's not just a mere belief. The author of Hebrews here goes through many examples throughout this entire chapter, which I recommend you read if you haven't read it in a while, of men and women who demonstrated great faith and a steadfast belief that God is faithful and does and will do what He says He will do. But we also know that in the Bible that we have many great examples of faith, but we have a lot of examples of a lack of faith. So let's go to one of those right now, which really kind of goes back to the beginning as far as us understanding the pattern in which God... Let's go to Exodus, the 16th chapter. Sorry, I didn't give you that passage. Uh, but kind of starts at the beginning of God revealing this pattern that he will continue on. Obviously, we're going to be reading about the children of Israel here, but we know that our faith is connected to that in terms of understanding that the children of Israel and what they went through were types of what pointed to the ultimate, and that is Jesus Christ in the future. Let's pick it up in verse 1. And they, that being the children of Israel, journeying from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, 
that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And that is a striking thing that we see the children of Israel murmuring about. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, and that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel at evening, you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? Also Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us but against the Lord. And so we see that the children of Israel, even after seeing the miracles of God, bringing them out of the, out of the land of the Egyptians, a very mighty kingdom, a very powerful kingdom, especially during this period of time, the Israelites still lacked faith that God would provide for them. And they literally complained against God. They complained against God. And this is... Just one example, we know that there are other occasions. We can talk about the, the golden calf, and we can talk about many other examples of the children of Israel, those, that first generation that came out of Egypt. Despite seeing all of the miracles, we see that many times that they lacked faith, and they were punished for it. And that punishment would equal them not entering into the promised land. Let's turn to Hebrews, the third chapter, because there's a warning for us there's a warning for us. And I'll just mention, we just read about God providing bread from heaven to the ancient Israelites. And we know, we read this several times throughout the days of unleavened bread and many of the messages that Christ is that bread of life for us. But let's go to Hebrews, the third chapter. And let's read the first few, first, uh, few verses. It says there in verse 1, Therefore, Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him as Moses, also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses, indeed, was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. And so here we see Moses and Jesus being compared, not in a way of competition, uh, obviously, we know that Christ is the ultimate shepherd and is greater than all, as the scripture reads right here in Hebrews. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And we understand that Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. 
But what we can learn is that if God was faithful, and we know He was, to the children of Israel, and the house that He built through Moses, so much more He's going to be faithful in the ultimate house that He is building in the name of His Son. Reading on, let's just read on in verse 7. We are given a warning about not having faith. And it's not just something that God offers us. It's something that God requires. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And we know that they did not enter that rest that God had promised. uh, That land of promise. But he would give it to the next generation. Verse 12. Beware brethren. Lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief. And a parting from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardening, hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom he did swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. And we know that faith has many areas. There's faith in God that he will do his promises. And there's faith in, 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 in the actual correct doctrine. But what we learn from the scriptures is that faith is not just some mere belief. It's not just some simple dormant um, feeling that we have. But it's something that drives us to action. Let's go to James the second chapter. James the second chapter. And we've heard this before. Many of these things we've heard. But James the second chapter we know shows us that faith is an active characteristic James 2 verse 18 we read but somebody will say you have faith and I have works show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works you believe that there is one God you do well even the demons believe and tremble too often I'll stop right there just to comment too often we see versions of Christianity that seem to indicate that simply belief is faith. And we see here that James is correcting that error. That's not genuine faith, just to simply believe. Even the demons believe that there's a God. Real faith is active. In fact, when we go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, when we look at all of those examples of faith in that chapter, the hall of faith, as some people call it, Almost every single one of them were listed there 
for their faith, not just because they had some intellectual belief, but because they acted. They were examples of faith because of what they did. Their faith drove them to action. Let's read on. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that man, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. We know that there is a lot of confusion on that. The Apostle Paul talks also about this issue. But verse 25, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? We understand Rahab and the story and the story of Jericho and the children of Israel coming in there. And she had faith that they would spare her and her family. She had faith and it drove her to do what she was asked to do. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so we see that faith is not just some dormant feeling, intellectual belief, but it's something that drives us in our life, in our actions. The next characteristic, which is a companion of faith, is hope. When you have faith, it drives you to have hope. Genuine faith is going to bring about true, genuine hope. And sometimes, differentiating between these two characteristics can be difficult because these two concepts can be sometimes, they're very related to each other, but they're also sometimes used interchangeably. But faith fuels hope. If you were just to go to a basic definition, though, we've got to distinguish not, not just between faith and hope, but we also have to distinguish between hope as it is in the Bible and hope as it is maybe in our current uh, modern English language. If, if you were to go, I did this this morning, uh, which the simple online search of a, what is the definition of hope? And if you were to do that, you would get something similar to this, a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen. It is something that we wish for or we have a desire for. Now, some of the examples of the way that we use the idea of hope in our current day and age we probably use these terms the same way uh, as most people do, but you kind of, maybe it's not even something you say, but you think, right? You know, I hope I make it to work on time, right? I hope I make it to work on time. I hope I pass my test. I hope that I get that promotion at work. And in our current situation, I hope that the shutdown ends soon, which is something that I think worldwide, or at least in America, at least most of us hope that the shutdown ends soon and we can get back to our, to our lives and doing the things that we like to do. But what is common in all of these examples is that there is no guarantee in what we hope for. When we think about that, right? We think, you know, I hope that I get that promotion at work. Well, we, we hope for it, we long for it, but we know that there's not a guarantee. There's not a guarantee, but hope from a biblical perspective, is different. 
there is a complete expectation, a surety. It's a belief in something that's surely going to happen. The term hope, and I got this from the complete expository dictionary of the Old New Testament words by William Mounts. Uh, and he says that the noun hope, or the, the, the word hope, in the New Testament is both in verb and noun form. And the noun form comes from the Greek word elpis, and it is used with the nonce of confident expectation or solid assurance. Solid assurance. And we know that hope in the New Testament is not something that we just hope for. We don't know if it will happen, but we hope it will. It's a solid assurance. It is a confident expectation. And what we hope for is going to be a reality. Let's go to Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans 5. Romans, the fifth chapter. We read in verse 1 of Romans... Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have that faith. We, we've been justified. We believed. Verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith unto this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul here tells us that we should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we know that when Paul wrote this, he didn't mean for us to hope in a wish. We hope in something, as Paul tells us, that is a reality. We know it's going to come true. He meant to convey to us confidence that our hope in this is sure. As he goes on to comment in just a few verses down in verse 5. Paul says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This hope is a futuristic expectation of certainty rooted in God's faithfulness and His promises. It is this hope that drives us in the here and now as we look beyond to the future. But we know Going back to that first characteristic, to have hope, one first has to have faith. Without faith, there is no hope. To put it another way, our hope or expectation is only as firm as our faith. And brethren, we have been given a great hope. Those days that we just got done observing, the days of unleavened bread, has spelt out what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And through what God has done, we can have a hope that God will continue to do the things He says He is going to do, including us as partakers in that kingdom coming to this earth. So let's go back to Acts, and let's pick it up in Acts, the fourth chapter. I want to kind of go back. We, we read and we started out and the title of this message today is about being witnesses for Christ. You will be my witnesses. And I just want to look at an example of the apostles. After Peter and John in Acts the fourth chapter, Pentecost has come. We know that we're going to observe Pentecost in, in a little while, a um, few weeks. Uh, and God willing, it will be here together 
with all the brethren. Uh, but we also know that Peter and John, in after Pentecost, in Acts the fourth chapter, the Holy Spirit has come. Uh, they get arrested in the temple for healing a lame man and preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Now we know that they knew that this would cause a stir. Okay? They knew, and they weren't, that wasn't their, their point. They weren't trying, hey, let's go cause trouble. Let's go cause a stir. Let's, let's go cause a commotion. They knew. But when the occasion arose, they had no other choice but to be a witness to Jesus as they were commissioned to be. They knew that this would cause a stir. They knew that this would get them into trouble with the Sanhedrin, the same people who arrested and killed Jesus. But despite this, they demonstrated great faith and hope. Let's pick it up in verse 18. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, because they knew you know, they were told not to do these things, and perceived that they were, let's, excuse me, not 18, I, I apologize, verse 13. I have it written down here as verse 18, but it's verse, verse 13. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. This man clearly was someone that people knew about. He was a lame person, a person who had a crippling you know, uh, handicap. And they, this was people, or people probably recognized this man. They, they, he'd probably been there for several years. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council... They conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Verse 18. So they called them and commanded them, not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. So obviously they're commanding them to disobey the commission, the instructions of Jesus, right? Verse 8, 19, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. Can you imagine being one of these Jewish leaders and hearing these words? For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And skipping down to verse 29, we read, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. They weren't going to listen. They're changed individuals. Verse 30, By stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. This was a wonderful transformation that we see unfold in the book of Acts after the day of Pentecost. And it didn't stop here. Acts, the fifth chapter, we're going to read a little bit more. Again, same story almost. Some of the apostles, they were arrested in the temple for... Once again, carrying out faithfully what Jesus had commissioned them to do. Preaching Jesus and the kingdom. And as you might have remembered this story, this is the story where the apostles, they were 
jailed. They were set free by an angel. And the angel told them to go back out there and continue to preach Jesus in the temple again. And at the advice of this prestigious or highly esteemed rabbi by the name of Gamaliel, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, they were let go, but not without being beaten, commanded not to preach this Jesus anymore. Again, the same thing is happening. The Jews aren't going to detain them forever. They're not going to put them to death at this, at, right here and now. The Jewish leaders, that is. But they are warned, again, not to do this. And they were disciplined. They were beaten. Acts, the fifth chapter, verse 40. What happens after this is astonishing, just to let you know, as you already know. Verse 40, and they agreed with him, that is Gamaliel, the Jews being counseled by Gamaliel. Gamaliel's telling them, hey, you need to not have anything to do with these men. Let them go. If it's, it, you know, God forbid that you are actually fighting against God. He had the wisdom to actually say, hey, look, if this is not of God, it'll come to nothing. But if it is to God, the implications is really serious. You'd be fighting against God. And when, they had all call, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for him. I mean, that right there brings James to mind. Count it all joy. We face various trials and tribulations. That is some... Amazing faith. That, that right there is such a testimony to the powerful transformation of the Spirit. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so I have some points of reflection uh, for this story here. We, just like the apostles, we're in the same abode. We're in the same... Obviously, our situations are different. Our contexts are different. There's been a large amount of time in between us and them, but our mission is the same, and that is we are to be witnesses to Jesus. That commission is universal and eternal. Or eternal, at least until Christ comes back. We are working towards something, even if it's not realized in this life. And we have a great hope. That being an expectation, a, a fulfillment of things to come. And when we look over the stories of the Bible, almost never does God give a promise and immediately fulfill it. It just doesn't happen. That's just not how the way that God works. But we are to have faith that gives us a surety of hope, a sure expectation that God is faithful. But we have to prepare. Many people know that I've been in education for several years. And uh, usually during this time of year, uh, we, different schools all over the country, all different types of schools are getting ready for, if you're high school, graduation. Uh, graduation's a, uh, something that happens usually in the spring. They can happen in the winter and things like that and at some places, but usually the big ones in the spring. And, you know, unfortunately for many kids across the country, you know, they're 
graduation ceremonies are being suspended or being uh, postponed or even canceled. Uh, but the reason I bring this up is, you know, for me, it's always been something I really enjoyed, and that was the gradu- graduation ceremony. You get to see kids. They went to school for 12 years, and this is the culmination event of all of that work, getting to walk across the stage, hear their name said, and get their high school diploma. But one of the things, and this isn't just seniors, this is pretty much for any course that you take, uh, one of the big things in a course is a final examination. And a final examination, you know, the preparation for that doesn't or should not start the night before. And I say should not because I'm guilty of that being someone who's done that before and I didn't do do well when that happens. But the final examination doesn't begin just the night before, the week before, the month before, but truly it's the culmination of the entire semester, the entire course. The things that you learn in the process of the course is supposed to prepare you for that final examination. And that way, when you take that examination, you're prepared. You're prepared. And the same goes with our walk with God. We're on a course right now. And we don't know when our final examination is going to be. And there's going to be many summative, not summative, but uh, formative exams that, you know, in the process, you know, little checkpoints. We're going to go through different things. But we don't know when that end date is. Because we all are on different paths. We're same faith, same hope, but obviously there's no telling when the end of our race is. It's different for all of us. And so it brought me to thinking about the Counts of Pentecost. We, we, we go through the Days of Eleven Bread and we prepare for that count. We, we count the days down. And I mentioned in a devotional just a few days ago, the last day of unleavened bread that in a lot of ways that period between you know the the unleavened bread and the pentecost is that waiting period and that's kind of like symbolic of our life right we're we're expecting we're looking forward to this promise that's not quite here yet and so in the spirit of pentecost as we look forward to that time and we're counting down the days and we're trying to learn as the days go by, more and more about God. Let's just take that analogy to our life. Beginning of our course, our baptism, which the Days of Unleavened Bread is a memorial, a yearly annual memorial of that baptism, of that beginning, of that way that we started in Christ Jesus. Many examples that we see of people preparing way in advance for events that happen long time in the future. We can think about Noah and the flood. You know, he didn't start building that ark whenever the flood rains came. It was many years before the flood came that Noah started. And let's think about that. That took faith. He knew that people probably would ridicule him for even doing that. I bet year after year, people would come by and say, hey, where's those flood rains at, Noah? Of course, we don't know exactly what it was like back then, but I can imagine it's similar. Even Abraham himself, you know, we talk about Abraham already. 
and James. We've talked about Abraham in a lot of different aspects, but that very first introduction of Abraham in the book of Genesis, we read about what he does. He leaves everything he knows. Hebrews 11, chapter, verses 8 and 10 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. But by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with whom of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The apostles themselves, not one of them received the kingdom of God. Not one of them witnessed the return of Christ. But yet they had faith and a hope that they pressed on. They continued. Many today in our own assembly, we talk about uh, Mr. Dr. David Antion, his wife that tragically and unexpectedly passed away just about a week ago or so. And we talk about people in the faith that we know of. So many that we have known and others throughout the world have loved God, have had faith in God, have continued having God as their true hope, their certain expectation, even in the midst of cancer, diseases, tragedies, and all types of hardships, and died never receiving what they were working toward yet. And all these examples, there was a preparation period. The only difference is, we do not know what our personal final examination is. The Holy Spirit, we know that as we walk towards, or as we journey, walk we, we, towards this day of Pentecost, the culmination of that day is, as Art talked about, something that was had worldwide implications. It had implications for all of time because it was the first time that God poured out His Spirit in that manner for those who believed on His Son. And that is what enables this journey. That's what enables that faith that strengthens our hope that allows us to be faithful to the commission that Jesus has given each and one of us and that is to be His witnesses. Let's just think about the two before and after. You know, people do the before and after with all different kinds of things. You can do before and after for maybe you get an old car or something like that, right? And you, you, you fix it up. You take a picture of it at the salvage yard. And then you take a picture of it a year later when you restore it. Make it look brand new. People do that for weight loss, the before and after. There's a before and after snapshot of the apostles. Because what we see is, we see this group of men who out of fear abandoned Christ to men in the face of shackles and threats of de death boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ in the gospel. I mean, the, ap the apostle Peter at Jesus' crucifixion, all of them fled, but Peter denied him three times just like Jesus said he would. Just like Jesus said he would. But their faith after Pentecost their faith and hope were truly realized and they became faithful witnesses as Jesus commissioned them to be. Here's an interesting note about that. When they fled, when they fled back 
before Jesus was crucified, right before when he was arrested, the evidence of the biblical message would lead us to believe it was during a time they thought that Jesus was going to soon restore the kingdom of God on earth. So when they thought the kingdom was imminent and going to come, they were scared. When they had boldness was during a time when they seemed to realize that it may be quite some time. And at the end they realized it would not be in their lifetime. So when they thought it was imminent and it was getting ready to happen, any day Jesus has been, you know, he's getting ready to be crucified. Of course they probably didn't understand Jesus' words. But it's interesting when they fled was when they thought the kingdom was going to be just around the corner. When they had boldness is when they realized it was far off. That's a very powerful and interesting little tidbit there on this. Let's go to, and I didn't give Brian this, let's go to Ephesians the third chapter. I would like to conclude in Ephesians the third chapter. There's a little prayer that Paul gives in Ephesians 3, picking it up in verse 14. And I think it's fitting to read this in light of this message today. Verse 14 in Ephesians the third chapter. Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do is exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so as we conclude this message and as we count the days till Pentecost comes, let's just think about that commission that Jesus gave all of us to be witnesses to him. And some of the characteristics that being a faithful and true, genuine witness to Christ. And that is faith and hope. And let's remember our faith as we looked at the days of unleavened bread and we reviewed what God indeed did for us. Past tense. It's already done. It's already completed. That is the shedding of Jesus' blood and the beating of His body so we can have life. But we have a hope that Jesus will return. And that Jesus will set up a kingdom on this earth. And that as the scriptures say, as heirs of that through Christ, we will all be a part.